0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, right, good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I want to thank David Moxley and his staff for giving me this opportunity to go lone wolf today. There's been a lot on my mind, especially as a Vietnam veteran, as an American, We're listening and to as a America's person who loves Radio. this country. On the There's America's a lot going and uh, I'm going to take this time to give you my point of view on a few things. Meyer McPherson once stated, above all, Vietnam was a war that asked everything of a few and nothing of most in America. A truer statement has never been uttered. Two and a half years in Vietnam taught me many things about the cruelty of man yet the compassionate side of man just as well. As an intelligence analysis analyst, Vietnam taught me how not to fight a war, how not to win a war, how war fought from the basement of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue will never be won. America has not had a combat veteran in the White House since Could number be, forty-one, I'm go World War Two veteran George can, uh, H. W. Bush occupied the Oval Office. And, uh, Sandy Springs, Ladies and gentlemen, it shows. That guy, you know, my two and a half year tropical vacation partici- participating in a war we weren't allowed to win, but destroyed all the faith I ever had to in the federal go-to. government. Basically, the war lies That's what he said. wore me out. He said, I I think he my love of country remained strong, but a weak government with its weak leadership I know, I call the, destroyed the trust in government that, that my parents had instilled in my young soul. Ronald Reagan recharged I've been my allegiance been up there and sort of Bill Clinton's under the desk shenanigans the charger cables once again you know well, the twin towers came down and raised my hackles enough to fight another war or anything like that at age not I been a factor know. Yes. now in my personal opinion any- Donald Trump gave us hope that we could emerge from a slide into oblivion Yet the man became a stagnated mess of a leader trying to defend himself a, against the a, biggest got, impeachment so, fraud right in our now. nation's history. Um, well, I don't think so. I, think I mean, is Biden made, God help us, a bad America. substitute yeah. for Donald Trump. Now, I think most of the nation realizes you know, that now. And VP Harris is nowhere near qualified I mean, to govern nor lead I mean, the United States of America, you know, especially that as wrong. a Commander in Chief. I mean, that's that's yeah.
2: one of their wackos.
1: America that's is sinking wrong. into a political quicksand uh. with little hope of not being sucked under. Yeah, did you go uh, vote or not vote? Wait. Go get your driver's license. Twenty twenty two midterm elections are this nation's last hope of tossing a life saving line to our fellow citizens being sucked down into the quagmire of socialist and communist crap. Still, sadly, in my opinion, the seeds of America's future have already been sown. What may happen in the presidential elections of 2024, if indeed we still have our elections in the country, it will be the end of days for the United States of America as we know it, and the end of days for the greatest experience in governing that the world has ever seen. Why? No, because it no longer matter who wins. If the Socialist Congress win in 2024, in America loses. It loses everything. Yes, it loses forever. If the Republicans win, no, no, the far-left radicals will once again seek to unite the, the time-worn tactics. World fires, arson, death, and destruction, unlike anything this nation has ever experienced. However, and hear me out on this, the controlled chaos preached and activated by the socialist and communists has run its course. The citizens of America have reached the end of their ropes with the Marxist, communists, socialists, the race baiters, and race haters school teachers who indoctrinate instead of educate bad government, dishonest government, bad people, drugs, criminals, gangs, lack of personal security and protection, and want to be dictators. The second shock heard around the world is coming. There will be no peace come twenty twenty four. My fellow Americans, I pray every day that I am wrong about my prediction, because whatever comes in 2024, be it a revolt, insurrection, civil war, race war, whatever you want to call it, any attempted takeover of our government, of our freedoms, and our way of life, it will be waged by untrained and idealistic amateurs who have never experienced the true horrors of war. Do not take my comments as promoting a call to violence. It is, however, a call to defeat violence. Violence materializes in many forms, be it bullying or bloody. Thus, our own human impulse to flee or fight must also be defeated. Bravery is not dependent on courage. Bravery is the result of nothing left to lose. America's Web Radio has its adversaries as any conservative talk show will. And my comments be condemned by the left wing while supported by the right wing. Yet, send middle of the roaders into the fog of dialectic rambling circle car marks. The middle of ro- middle of the roaders have yet to come to grips with the political truth that the uncommitted path they travel is at a crossroads. They must go left, or they must go right. Neutrality is over. I also believe my statements will be condemned and rebuked by academics and socialists and communists and Marxist progressives and members of Congress who never did and never will take their oaths seriously. Their denunciations will bellow forth in 50 dollars words lining with less than two cents worth of common sense. They may voice criticisms such as simple-minded tabloid trash, nothing but a rambling judgment of an unfacificated working man. To which I pragmatically reply, thank you. In his uh, pamphlet, uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, in their pamphlet The Commerce Manifesto, called the working class of that era the proletariat. They called the ruling class the bourgeoisie. Well, today there is an American working class. We'll call it the American proletariat. Now, I say to hell with the bourgeoisie and the privileged politicians, the communist Marxists, and neo-Nazis on both wings of the party political spectrum. America's proletariat may be the working class, but America's proletariat has more liberty, opportunity, wealth, and health than any working class in the history of mankind. Those who wish to destroy America in the name of socialism, Marxism, or any other form of utopian hallucination are not in sync with the American proletariat. The utopians are, in fact, the organic enemy of the laboring genre. In order to vanquish America... The fifth column within our own borders must transform or fundamentally change the United States of America. The enemies of free enterprise, capitalism, must set forth as their first priority the destruction of America's proletariat, the working class. The collapse of the working class would necessitate the purging of private property, the stealthy indoctrination of our children via socialist-oriented schooling, a non-stop fictionalized crisis mode, internal division amplified by racial disharmony, a rehashing of regretful history, and blaming the nation's ills on targets of opportunity. To abolish the American proletariat, a disturbed version of free speech must silence any opposition, and the confiscation of self-defense weaponries must constitute their top priority. Therefore, the hard-working proletariat in America must accept the truth that the time has come. There comes a time when the survival of any nation is severely tested. Radicals left and right, social leeches, the lowest of the low politicians, and the almighty dollar, in due course, will bring down the most powerful and powerful brokers who callously blame anyone for this country's tribulations other than themselves. There comes a time when discrimination is an acceptable tactic to control the masses by pitting the masses against each other. Division breeds hatred. Hatred breeds unwarranted reactions, and unwarranted reactions breed a lawless society which benefits the power brokers who actually manipulate those willing to believe that they have been victimized. There comes a time when citizens have no choice but to revoke against tyranny. Tyranny is dependent on gullibility via foolishness or fear. Foolishness, fear, and dependency breeds a class of citizens trapped in the pessimistic shadows of naivety because it is the natural course of least resistance. Individuals who cannot or will not think for themselves, those who discard education and consider government as a supreme provider for survival, will not be content with handouts no matter how large or often the funds are dispersed. There comes a time when useful citizens comprehend the truth concerning their vague future, yet fail to engage the corruption and division because they are not in a disobedient position to do so. Productive citizens work. They have jobs and businesses. They have kids to raise and groceries to purchase. They cannot cannot wander dangerous streets to fight for their rights nor protests in sufficient numbers, due to adult responsibilities and a hesitance to engage in unlawful conduct. However, political discord is analogous to a volcano's pending eruption, bubbling lava of discontent beneath a thin surface of common sense. Eruptions are rarely avoided. There comes a time when revolution becomes the battle cry of numerous fractions. Yet whichever fraction becomes a political stepchild of the government has the best likelihood for victory. Government, when their hold on power is challenged, will side with any group. The regime indeed will maintain their hold on power. Power is political heroin. Politicians mainline power. It is their nature, it is their entire life, and will eventually be their downfall. There comes a time when all governments fail. Their collapse accelerates when security disintegrates and anarchy intensifies, resulting in crumbling allegiance to the power elite as rad- radicals spouting slick amperisms lull the masses into enthusiastic blobs of submission. Nations breeding flocks of lethargic sheep will eventually fail to produce sufficient numbers of shepherds to safeguard the flocks. There comes a time when higher education is regarded as highbrow rubbish to an uneducated populace, a situation that would generate the best core of revolution, jealousy. The concept the concept of the haves versus the have-nots falls on mute reasonings when have-nots coordinate for votes via cell phones and funds generated via credit cards, prosperous corporations, and wealthy parents. There comes a time when declining nations recognize there is nothing new under the revolutionary sun. No new factors are failing, no technical reason for blood flowing through the city gutters. Modern business do not have new merchandise to sell. Only revised political assumptions proven defective throughout civilized history when utilized to eliminate civilized society. Folks, I'll be right back. Stay with me. All right, folks, I'm back with you. I want to continue with uh, my statements on that the time has come. There comes a time when the uninterrupted call for diversity is met with the ridicule and uh, condemnation it deserves. No nation on Mother Earth has recognized diversity, more recognized diversity, than the United States of America. Yet, no society or community is perfect due to the the imperfections of the human species. There comes a time when even a successful revolutionary must ask his victorious self, what now? What governmental system shall we inaugurate? What do we do when the has-beens, and with the has-beens, what do we do with them? And who is our undeniable kingpin? and how do we make money? There comes a time when the American people will collectively rebel against the deep state. A corrupted, criminal minded and cold-hearted enterprise alleging to represent the very people they covertly detest. The approaching rebellion will gradually materialize because no human being, regardless of schooling or IQ, will tolerate being treated like a fool forever. Ladies and gentlemen, there comes a time. We have seen a lot of changes in our country since World War II, and I wanna discuss these changes with you. President Franklin Roosevelt in his broadcast broadcast on December 9th 1941 said this we are now in this war we are all in it all the way every man woman and child is a partner in the most tremendous undertaking of our American history unquote folks in the not too distant future while you're watching cable news or another media outlet you'll be interrupted with the breaking news that the last Vietnam or excuse me, the last veteran of World War II has passed away. Whatever you may think, say, or feel at that moment in history, I hope we can all appreciate the fact that with his or her death, the last honest account of World War II has also faded away. The greatest generation is expiring at an astonishing rate. With their passing, one adage is irrefutable. America will never again see men and women in the same vein as G.I. Joe and Rosie the Riveter. The greatest generation was a product of the Great Depression. They understood what an authentic food shortage signified because they felt the deficiency in their bellies. Plus, they witnessed the despondency of family and friends. The frequent promise of a middle class was more of a pipe dream than the American dream. Redneck farmers with calloused hands and jack-of-all-trade metropolitan inhabitants worked jobs, any jobs, jobs later generations would consider beneath their dignity. Yet these descendants of hunger and hopelessness retained their faith and remained dutiful to the belief of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness a summon to arms remember pearl Harbor, prompted men and women by the millions to don a uniform or belly up to the production lines. friends and neighbors school chums brothers and sisters wives and husbands teammates aunts and uncles signed up and volunteered to support the war effort it just seemed like the right thing to do The Citizen Soldiers trained as a team. They learned how to kill to prevent from being killed. They drilled together, slept together, ate together, and sailed together across immense and dangerous oceans. Most of these young men had never been on a ship larger than a rowboat. Many had never seen an ocean. The Great Lakes astonished sailor trainees. The vessels they boarded were to civilian hand-me-downs with a few luxury liners thrown into the mix due to their speed and load capacity. More often than not, the boys aboard these ships barked for the entire journey, many with notions of jumping o- overboard to end their seasickness. Mississippi rebels and damn Yankees from Boston never wanted to board another ship or see another ocean. In due course, the Liberty ships, Pre-fab production line vessels of GI-4 patched together with duct tape and chewing gum carried the bulk of war materials. If not upchucking from seasickness or camped out in the head with diarrhea from unaccustomed grub, the boys spent their idle time spreading rumors or speculating on what lay ahead. Many of their destinations were unpronounceable. A few sounded Exotic. Yet these mysterious places were never mentioned in their 7th grade geography class. Within the coming inexperienced fighting months soon converted into combat-hardened years, these same strange-sounding names and places would be discussed at every American dinner table, church, and neighborhood bars across the country. Casserine Pass, El Alamein, Anzio Beach, Hurricane Forest, Maumadie, Mandalay, Guadalcanal, Peleliu, Rabaul, Eniwicoque, and a small, sick, smelling sulfur island in the middle of nowhere called Iwo So they sailed, flew, and marched to combat the southern Graus and Yankee Brogues, Midwestern Clarity, and the battle Native American tongues of the Navajo and Wampanoag tribes. Rich and poor whites, underprivileged blacks, Jewish immigrants on the East Coast, and Japanese Nisei from the West Coast. Young men of different colors with dissimilar similar cultures slipped on their combat boots and dog tads and dog tads, then died by the thousands on distant soil for a dirt airfield, a rock spring beach, shark-infested lagoons, or tiny atolls or if it were forever entombed in the murky depths of Iron Bottom Sound off Guadalcanal. Young men became old men spouting white hair in a matter of weeks, perhaps days, many in an hour. As soldiers bowed for mud and sailors fought for salt water, daring young men in cutting-edge flying machines fought for domination of the airspace over the same mud and same salt water. Then they deployed to take one more acre of hedge road or jungle, a new body of salt water, or a cloudless blue sky over an even purer blue lagoon. For the men and women who survived, they would never be the same. And back in the 48 states, major economic and societal reform hit lady liberty like a sledgehammer. She, too, would never be the same again. The Lady of Liberty was in transition, as were her ladies. Close to seven million women women worked in defense plants, while over a quarter million volunteered for military duty. Lady pilots ferried big bombers and agile fighters across the country, and dozens of them died in tragic accidents. The walls of prejudice revealed their predictable signs of weakness as black marines prove their mettle on Saipan and the Japanese Nisei battle across Italy and Europe, even as their families endured segregated injustice or housed as de facto POWs in hastily built internment camps back home. War tends to boost business. The United States renewed its industrial potency as the Great Depression succumbed to the Great Recovery once IO factories, shipyards, and production lines pulled up to unheard of manufacturing levels. 137 aircraft carriers and escort carriers. 806,000 two, uh, two and a half ton trucks. 41,000 guns and howitzers. 12, 12 and a half million rifles and carbines. 41 billion rounds of ammunition, 100,000 tanks and armored vehicles, 310,000 aircraft, and 36 billion yards of cotton textiles. As Japanese Admiral Yamato prophesied after assaulting Pearl Harbor, I fear all we've done is to awake a sleeping giant. Admiral Miyato, Yamamoto was spot on. Goliath was awake, and Goliath was pissed. In Washington, D.C., political affiliation salted as hawks and doves and indifferent vultures mutated into rage eagles with sharpened talents. So America went to work, and the boys went to war. She was changing, as were her workers, her culture, And this, the 17 men in uniform who came home to do their best to live out their lives while trying to cope with the nightmares of the war they had won. The greatest generation. We will never see their likes again. Mainly because we've we've, uh, deserted the concept of unconditional surrender I want to move on to uh, the so called Unforgotten War President Harry S. Truman speaking on Korea said this was a police action a limited war whatever you care to call it it stopped aggression to prevent a big war and that's all it ever was a police action now, President Gilmore Harry Truman was known for his bluntness and lack of social graces, but Harry was a down-to-earth type fellow, and he was honest. Nevertheless, referring to the Korean War as a police action was party political hogwash. A bona fide police action is a swarm of blue uniforms on a drug bust or according a domestic disturbance with the patience of Job. A police action is not 33,665 American warriors killed in action, 3,200 lost to disease, accidents or crashes, and another 103,000 officially listed as wounded. Unofficially, thousands of American soldiers in Korea were wounded, treated by medics, and returned to action. No reports were made, and no Purple Hearts were received. To use a catch-all slogan such as police action is an insult to the soldiers and affront to the families of Korean War veterans. By comparison, my band of brothers in Vietnam paid the price of freedom with over 58,000 American lives in the 10 years of build-ups, bombing hops, booby traps, and BS from political leaders. That equates to an average of 5,826 flag-draped caskets per year and accept my apology for using damnable statistics in discussing American war dead. To continue, our men fought and froze in Korea for three years, which equates to 11,222 combat deaths each year. Those gruesome statistics are not the statistics of a police action, nor do they indicate the suffering. I pray our country will never again claim the deaths of thousands of American warriors were coward casualties of a police action, a limited war, or the ludicrously politically correct explanation for world war as an overseas contingent operation, whatever the hell that is. Google, visit a local library, and research the Korean War, and you'll notice one habitual phrase. The Forgotten War. Whoever coined this a preposterous phrase obviously never wore a uniform or witnessed the horrors of war. May the catchphrase please the publisher or respond from the intellect or lack thereof of a vain lecture then called on as the taxonomy of the Korean War. What a pity. The notion using the word forgotten might offend or dishonest our Korean War veterans wasn't even a postscript. Korean veterans are a unique breed of American warriors. Their conflict was wedged between the triumphant World War II strategies of unconditional surrender versus the humiliating safe-faced perception of an honorable withdrawal from Vietnam. Their war, from the Pusan perimeter to the frozen chosen, would be the first conflict of many future conflicts to be determined by political squabbling instead of American firepower. We'll be back to Korea in just a minute, folks. Let's go to our second break. Thank you for standing by.
0: Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: All right, folks, I'm back with you. We're discussing the Korean War. You know, the American War is one, the Korean War. The conflict was over in October of 1950. Our soldiers would be home for Christmas. Casualties had been light, almost acceptable. Yet the world failed to take note of the endless manpower north of the uh, Yalu River. China. Military intelligence, which, as a former intelligence member, I must confess the designation can be somewhat oxymoronish, disseminated the thorough of a portion of the Chinese intended to intervene on a massive scale. In addition, the Chinese had warned both the United States and the United Nations through neutral embassies that if push came to shove on the Yalu, the Chinese would shove and shove hard. As history regrettably reveals, the warnings were ignored since the war was over, and the good guys had won. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's a quarter million Chinese soldiers waddling across the frozen Yalu River. The worried President Truman and the pig-headed General Douglas MacArthur traded antagonistic opinions on strategy objectives as american soldiers and marines fought for their lives in minus zero temperatures during a disorganized organized retreat whereas the marines claim we're just attacking in a different position and direction soldiers died from untreated wounds heroic but exhausted marines froze to death in defensive positions they ran out of ammunition food and hope they weren't going home for Christmas. Ultimately, reorganized and re-equipped. America and her allies regained lost ground, lost the field again, then battled back for desolate hilltops with names like Bloody Ridge and White Horse, O'Baldy, Jane Russell, Heartbreak Ridge, and a piece of useless real estate the rings nicknamed Mucker Hill. As the see- seesaw battles continued, Young men on both sides breathe their last breath, holding or trying to retake indefensible pieces of real estate along the infamous 48th Parallel, while so-called peace talks dragged on at Penman John. The peace talks at Penman John can surely be considered the ultimate oxymoron. Negotiators argued over the mentions of the conference table or the sizes of national flags. The communists accused Americans of engaging in germ warfare, an accusation so absurd the Soviet delegation at the United Nations chose to remain silent on the issue. So the fighting continued. Men fought for a few extra yards of bloody salt so Dedek's could gain the political edge at a conference table. This new type of warfare did not sit well with the American people. We fought and won a global war. So what the heck is going on in Korea, and why are we still there? Difficult questions were asked, but solutions were in short supply. Interest in the war faded away quicker than the old soldier in a, um, General McAuliffe's famous fadeaway speech before Congress. Men kept dying as other men and fam rooster personalities bicker out about a word or a comma or... Or a paragraph of the bloody communist P.O.D. riot at Kojido Prison. The lunacy eventually ended with a ceasefire agreement signed on July the twenty seventh, nineteen fifty three, which was nothing more than an unadorned armistice between two militaries agreeing to stop the killing while both sides fought sought the political solution. Not much of a victory dance for the American boys we lost in combat. Officially, we are still at war with North Korea. Thus, all the saber-rattling and swagger from their twerk-like leadership. So the boys came home. No parades, no victory speeches. Nobody cared. Over 60 years later, the grandsons of the Korean War veterans are still guarding the 38th parallel while praying to God that the diplomacy keeps them safe from torques with nuclear weapons. <laughs> now, about 10 months after the ceasefire was signed in Korea, French Colonel Christian Castres announced via radio that a stronghold at Ben Ben-Pugh had fallen to the Viet Minh. French colonialism had died a long, drawn-out death, and Indochina, or as the locals called it, Vietnam. The United States increasingly filled the void by sending advisors and Green Berets in South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia to hopefully stem the tide of world communism. The ensuing advisory role became a 10,000-day war. The first recognized American casualty was Richard B. Fitzsimmons. He died on June 8, 1956, at the age of 36. His 21-year-old son, Marine Lance Corporal Richard B. Fitzgibbon III, was killed in action on September 7, 1965, in Quang Trinh Province. Sad. Like Stanley Baldwin said, war would end if the dead could return. During World War II, uh, the China-Burma-India Theater of operations, where my father served, he served almost three years over there, that was his war. My war kept me in Southeast Asia for almost three years. Like father, like son, but Dad knew for what he felt, freedom and unconditional surrender to the enemy. His son only thought he grasped the logic behind the Vietnam War. See, so my generation grew up on, we grew up on the stories of World War II. We read all the books. We cheered John Wayne as he and the Marines took Mount Suribachi, Sands of Iwo Jima. Korea, to the Vietnam generation, was a vague concept of limited war, with little consequence for American families. Except for kids like Steve Burke, my high school buddy. His dad was a pilot. His dad was killed in the fighting for an eventual stalemate on the peninsula in Korea known as the Hermit Kingdom. But exactly what happened in this mysterious third world country called Vietnam, what caused half of my generation to rally around the flag while the other half burned it. In the end, a truism prevailed that even the most powerful country on earth cannot arrogantly trample across quicksand. Half-assed wars breed half-assed results. The price of such folly resulted in over 58,000 names etched into a 494-foot black granite wall. A wall void of elaborate statuary and without the inscription to identify which war it represents. America lost its innocence in Vietnam, much like a young virgin was very a bad decision. The psych- psychological effects of that decision Still walks our streets today. My personal journey home from Vietnam came to fruition on Veterans Day weekend, on 2011. I was fortunate to be on one of four airlines, courtesy of the History Channel, on a flight to Washington, D.C., transporting a bunch of Vietnam veterans up there for a whirlwind of activity at the walk. Joe Galloway, the celebrated war correspondent who remained on the ground throughout the Battle of i Valley, was our guest speaker, and we lost Joe about a month ago. Great guy. Joe didn't put any punches in his speech. He spoke the truth, and we embraced his veracity. After nearly 50 years of private nightmares and memories, I was finally able to approach the chunk of black granite and caress the names of the guys that I knew a long time ago. One main matching to the Black Granite was Douglas Rays. Doug and I graduated together from Bartlett High School, northeast of Memphis, Tennessee. Doug, he, <laughs> he was rough and tough, so he joined the Marines. As a student pilot behind the controls of Cessna 150s and 172s, I was naturally channeled to the Air Force. Doug and I both ended up in a country, unlike Japan, the land of the rising sun, or Thailand, the land of smiles, this country didn't even have an internationally recognized nickname. This land, this war-torn piece of real estate under 2,000 years of foreign domination, was even officially recognized by the name Vietnam until 1945. The G.I. had slang words for Vietnam. I cannot repeat most of them. But Doug and I ended up in this no-name land of Mines and leeches to fight in someone else's civil war. It just seemed like the right thing to do. He was 18 years old. As I stepped on off airplanes, Doug stepped on a landmine. There were 40,000 names on the wall. Were 22 years old or younger. The youngest was PSC Dan Bullock. He had just turned 15 years old when he was killed in action. Was Vietnam really worth the price? Well, one can prove the was of war run from the basin of the White House. Absolutely not. But P.S.C. Dan Bullock, Doug Glaze, and Peter J. Mecca, Sr.'s progeny, had our war. It was our time to serve, and we did not shirk from our duty. The road less travel would be to rehash the hard fought battles, the Hydrange Valley, the 68 Tet Offensive, Marines clinging to a hilltop base called Khe San, Air Force and Navy jets dodging surface and air missiles en route to downtown Hanoi. I could rehash the battle away. Any critique on Vietnam must include the, ironic, the ironically claimed neutral, neutral enemy havens of Laos and Cambodia was the Pentagon Papers, wishy-washy politicians, war protesters, and an enemy ally named Jane Fonda. But those fundamentals of the war are best left to the historians and the heretics. My job is to tell the truth. My brothers and sisters joined, we served, and mercifully most of us survived. We withstood and endured things Hollywood never filmed. We believe in hot dogs, apple pies, apple pie, and Chevrolet, with several fours thrown into the garage to keep the economy in sync. Yet we spent our formative years with leeches, gun-filled rice paddies, imprintable jungles, cobras, punji steaks, and slant-eyed adversaries who all looked the same. We even developed a fondness for French cognac. We compared war to football. You gear up, you take the field, you kick ass, and then you go home. Not in Vietnam. Our boys stayed on the field too long in the grain of their motivation and their spirit. American boys in ordered to block passing tackles, with one hand tied behind their backs, while the opponent played by their own rules, never saw a penalty flag, and stealthily recruited cheerleaders, beecher bums, and concession workers to kill us on the slack. Foul play by the other side, no matter how important, did not be challenged, and replays were prohibited. The game was rigged. Yes, it was. Folks, I'll be back for our last 15 minutes in just a moment. Please stay with us.
0: HOF.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: All right, folks, I'm back you for our last uh, session here. I hope I get everything in. So there we were. My high school buddy, Doug Race, who was killed in Vietnam. Dan Bullock, who just turned 15 when he was killed in action. And there I was, too, in a no-win situation and basically a war a football game that was rigged. We fought 10,000 miles from the world world of round-eyed women. We actually were in another world, another culture, sold by another race, embroiled in a civil war with no end in sight for interlopers. America was installed in a no-win situation. Washington knew it, but lacked the guts to call a duck a duck. If a nation does not learn from its history, then bad history will repeat itself. Iraq and Afghanistan come to mind. You know, one false concept concerning my war Vietnam is that we lost the war. If we implies the men in uniform, then the statement is totally bogus. If we means the decision architects in Washington, D.C., In truth, wins the day. The American soldier in Vietnam never lost a major battle. Washington, D.C. knew we were in trouble, and they drug it out as long as they could. They wanted to talk peace in Paris. The communists knew they were on the road to victory. They didn't have any interest in talking about peace. So Nixon... Whether you liked him or not, he sent the B-52 bombers north over North Vietnam. They had several shot down, but their awesome power and bomb loads came closer and closer to Hanoi. Hanoi ran out of service to air missiles. They couldn't defend themselves anymore, so they said, Well, maybe we better go back to Paris and talk peace. Shades of Pam John. Many more quarterbacks will quarrel and debate promote their analytical, intellectual judgments concerning Vietnam, Iraq, or Afghanistan until their faces turn blue. But the facts are undeniable. Never send American warriors into no-win situations. Never hold back the firepower required for a prompt conclusion. And you negotiate from strength, not weakness. And you fight to win. American warriors are football players. Give them the ball. Let them run with it. They'll kick ass. And then you get our boys the hell home. You know, folks, uh, we supposedly kicked butt during the Gulf War. We kicked Saddam Hussein's army out of uh, Kuwait but we didn't go after the head of the snake. We left him there, resulting in another war in Iraq and a long occupation of that country and a lot of casualties. On August 7, 1998, we received another wake-up call. The embassies in Nairobi, Kenya, and Tanzania were reduced to rubble some little incident that PSA called Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility and had the audacity to declare war on the United States. Yeah. In response, President Clinton ordered a cruise missile strike on Osama bin Laden and his Al-Qaeda trading camp in the isolated area of Afghanistan. The missile strike impressed a couple of camels, but that was about it. We stopped a major terrorist attack in the year 2000. They were going to hijack several commercial airliners simultaneously and attack our country. President Clinton and the D.C. politicians congratulated each other. With attaboy pats on their back, the time is on the side of terrorism. On September 11, 2001, the piss ants roared. The Twin Towers came down. Death came to the east wing of the Pentagon, and an airliner was reduced to a million smoking pieces in a vacant field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Whether you like it or not, we're most likely in another one thousand year war—not one thousand—I'm sorry, hundred years war. Our pullout from the gas stand did no more than pave the way for another strike on our homeland, and it's coming. Believe me. One detail is indisputable. America's best, our military, will take the fight to our adversaries when they are allowed to. America's best always does. I'm not going to make too many comments on the pullout of Afghanistan. After what we witnessed and went through in Vietnam, I don't think I can keep my composure. The American warriors, the human beings who fought and suffered and die to preserve what other warriors attain for their generations, which is the simple yet enduring concept called freedom, these guys are good. They are the best, but they have to have leadership, and they have to be given the ball to run for that touchdown. For a foreign military to invade, occupy, and strip us of our feet or freedoms, is improbable, if not impossible. But Abraham Lincoln recognized how America could fall from God's grace. I quote: "America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it will it will be because we destroy ourselves." i quote from the Good Book, John eight thirty two then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, I don't mean to be so presumptuous as to rewrite the good book, but perhaps more fitting today would be the statement that then you will know the truth and the truth will keep you free. In the coming months, what side do you intend to take? What kind of America do you want to live in? Do you want your children educated or indoctrinated? Do you, do you believe our government should leave Americans on the battlefield? Or should our government live up to its only true responsibility, and that is the protection of the American people? We left Americans in Afghanistan. Uh, It's incomprehensible to me. We left Americans in Afghanistan. And the fact that we had our POWs come home from North Vietnam after after the Paris Peace Agreement didn't fail me too much. Yes, I was glad the POWs came home. And I'm glad to see the pictures of their families and loved ones embracing them after being in years of captivity. But the Paris Peace Accords did not make any stipulations for POWs in South Vietnam, Laos, or Cambodia. Folks, we left people over there. I'll tell you something uh, personal, and I hope to close this out this way. My neighbor uh, lost her husband to cancer about four or five months ago, and she's been kind enough to run me to the uh, mechanic. Uh, off and on, when my old rattle trap bucket of a van breaks down, so I asked her to have breakfast with me one morning just over so payback, which she didn't want, but she agreed to go with me. It was a nice breakfast. We had a nice talk. Well, during the talk, uh, we discovered, of course, that I was pretty much a, a flag raver and gun coat and Bible carrying patriot conservative, if you will independent but conservative, and she's a screaming liberal. She was out there as a hippie protesting the war when I was over there fighting the war. She claimed Woodstock was great, the only Woodstock I had was attached to my M14. We decided not to discuss politics because we wanted to remain friends. But guess what? We did discuss politics. She had her point of view, and I had my point of view. Now, here's the thing I hope I can get across to everyone who's listening in. Yes, she was a screaming liberal. And yes, I'm on the other side of the fence. But as we talked, and she's not a radical, okay? But as we talked, we found out That we both wanted the same thing for America. Just different ways of getting there. She is not my enemy. I am not her enemy. I do not hate her. She does not hate me. We have different points of view. And that is what this country is all about. You have to talk. You have to compromise. You have to be willing to hear the other side. I was taught in a a, uh, uh, one of my classes in college. I think it was a logic class. He said you always the professor said you always want to hear the other side of the story because what they say will strengthen your argument. But you always want to hear their side of the story because they just might be right. Are the liberals right? Are the conservatives right? Who knows? But time will tell. And let's pray to God that we make the right choice, that this country comes out stronger than it ever has, and that we still have a country. Folks, thank you for listening in. Uh, I know I was on a rant today, but I certainly got a lot off my chest. God bless the United States of America. God bless all of you. Keep the faith. This country is strong and we will remain the United States of America. Have a good day. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.